To make more sustainable products and businesses, we first need to change the way that we think about new product development, considering all the impacts of the entire life cycle from raw material to end of use. This should be ingrained into any product designer's mindset. It's called life cycle thinking, and it's not as easy as it sounds. Putting into practice and delivering real positive impact in line with commercial success takes a lot of work, but the results are worth it. Our guest today has more than 20 years experience as an innovation and R&D leader. He's the founder of Locust Research and has consulted on product commercialization for companies as diverse as Fisher & Paykel Healthcare, Pampak Forest Products, Boeing, LIC, and Cutter Holt Harvey. He's consulted to the New Zealand government, authoring reports on innovation, sustainability, and design over a 15-year period. And that includes writing a sustainable design resource on how to carry out product development responsibly for the Designers Institute. In 2016, he took on the role of CEO for UBCO Bikes and has been busy rapidly developing it into an international business manufacturing digitally connected electric utility vehicles. So here today to talk about life cycle thinking and what it takes to build a successful design-led business is Timothy Allen. Hey, Timothy, how are you? Good, Ollie. How are you? Mate, I'm, d- I'm doing well. At home here, recording this podcast. <laughs> it's a perfect lockdown activity. It is. So, I mean, jumping straight into it, man, like, what got you so interested in sustainable design? Um, it probably traces all the way back to when I was at university. So I did my design degree at co-jointly taught between Victoria and Wellington Polytech. So I think I graduated in 1996. And I come from a sort of fine art scholastic background. I mean, my final year subjects at school were English, art history, painting, sculpture, and along those lines. And so they weren't technical as such. Then I did a fine art diploma and went to Wellington to, you know, because I, I sort of got exposed to design when I did the diploma at um, Waikato Polytech and thought, yeah, look, this is interesting and found the best school in New Zealand was Wellington Polytech and applied for that and got in. And they had a first general year, which was super helpful for someone like me because I probably was, you know, on a certain pathway. And then I saw product design in my first year I don't think I made the decision, you know, intentionally, but it was sort of automatically. I really liked the physicality of product design and, you know, was blown away by the work. You know, the final year when I was in my first year was a particularly good year, actually. I think when you look at the people that graduated in that year and the quality of the work, there's a lot of very good international designers and that sort of cohort. But as soon as you probably start getting into it, you get into this, you start to see what product design is and where its place is in the world. And you certainly, you know, I think one of the products one of my friends worked on, first project out of school for Roche, was like 6 million units or something like that. So, you know, you definitely sort of, start, I'd already started to think about, well, you know, am I comfortable designing things that get made a lot and then probably may have an indeterminate end of life? Now, I mean, probably at school, my thinking was, I wouldn't call it sophisticated. It was just more of a, that's the way I sort of looked at the world. And then I, I mean, it's interesting that the company, I did my thesis project with MacPack and MacPack were definitely like oriented toward this and Bruce McIntyre was, you know, definitely kind of built that way. And then after I worked at Tapapa, I went to work for a company called Design Mobile and the owner, Dave McFarlane, was the same. And so the first major job that I had out of school, you know, I was able to put an ISO 14001. You sort of got exposed to kind of what sustainability could look like in an environment. And you sort of had the support to do things in a business context from sustainability 
ability. So it started at school, the awareness of it, and then it became sort of much more formally part of my practice and thinking at Design Mobile. So it started started pretty early then. Yeah. And that's was mostly because of just your your mindset and yeah, the people I, that you that you met through your early career. Definitely. I mean, and it's funny how you again it's not an intentional thing, but I guess the companies that you know, I perhaps were attracted to me and vice versa, you know, were that way oriented. And so I think it's probably having the perspective has helped to establish relationships with people that were like-minded. Yeah. So what led you to to set up Locus Research? Yeah, so, I mean, I wanted to set up a design company straight out of school and I actually, you know, talked in quite a lot of detail with a friend of mine, Thomas Sutton, who's now sort of global design director with Frog. And Tom wanted to go and get overseas experience. I was probably much more gung-ho and sort of thought, well, you know, do you actually need it? And so I guess like I was always probably on the pathway. And then at Design Mobile, I probably did, I developed a team of probably about maybe eight people, cross-functional design team, and probably did the major project you could do at Design Mobile. Because again, with some companies, there is one project that changes the most significant components of what they do. And you can't do those projects every year. They're a one in 10 year project. So I think once I did this um, new sleep system for Design Mobile, and once I'd done that, I mean, it was sort of logical that the next step was to kind of, you know, start what I'd wanted to start. And it it certainly helped me being in a company that was well run, well managed, because it sort of shows you what good looks like. Otherwise, you'd just be guessing. So, you know, having a, a sort of quality team of people that were older than me, I mean, you're able to kind of learn from them. I definitely went into Design Mobile with a view that, like, I wanted to do certain things. And and Dave was really great because you could say, I just say to Dave, look, this is what I want to do. You know, will you let me do it? And he was like, okay, yep. You know, so we, we were able to have conversations like that. And I think he appreciated the fact that I worked probably in the company as, you know, I've never really worked like an employee as such. I mean, you kind of work like it is yours. And so I think, you know, if someone is a business owner, I believe, you know, that's something they probably, you know, in hindsight, I, I didn't probably realise it, but it's probably not something that's that common, you know, to have someone who, who will actually be there and on a Saturday night and be trying to fix things and finish stuff. And I suppose people like Dave really appreciated that. And as a result, you know, he gave you more latitude to do more things. Yeah. So some some good experience before you, you set off on your own yeah. journey. With yeah, very much so. Yeah. And so Locus has been around for over 15 years now. Yeah. It's going back a bit. What, what have been some of the, the main highlights for you? I think probably because I'm quite unusually process driven, you know, for a creative person. And so, you know, I was sort of always interested in sort of developing the way that you work as well as doing the work. And yeah. that's certainly been a common thread in all of the work that I've done. And you're not necessarily doing every project right because, you know, then the team starts to do work. And that I think what I sat back after, it was probably after 10 years, and you look at the consistency of all the work and the fact that I actually wasn't the author of the work, but the consistency and the quality of the work is probably the thing that resonated with me. And I was, I mean, to be honest, I'm not quite sure what drove that. I mean, I can only really probably say it's, it was probably mostly to do with 
the philosophy. Uh, I think if you read the book Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull from Pixar, it's the same concept, right? It's sort of saying, look, we're not, I can't give you a formula, but we have a certain culture and a, f- a certain way of thinking about things that's what drives the work yeah i can totally relate to that i mean design is all about a way of thinking and, and a little bit about process and philosophy and, and then how do you scale that it sounds like you, you were able to scale that to beyond yourself yeah i mean i think when you look at the work coming out i would say it's not saying that it, it didn't take a lot of intentional work to do that i mean probably the biggest thing that you got to fight with is because i was a process oriented person i like structure but i don't like process per se it's probably more likely to say structure not process because you know what you can't do to a creative process is create a sausage machine because you know people just stop thinking and you're trying to force people to think so I was always pretty clear I said don't ever fall into the habit of doing something I did without thinking carefully about why at the outset. So the minute you intuitively feel like you're trying to put a square peg in a round hole, you need to step back and think, is this the right process? One of the most interesting demarcations for that is actually when you're doing material development, which I have worked on over time, and product development. Those are the two kind of types of projects which are actually very inconsistent in terms of the type of work that you need to do or the type of structure you need to have to try and make them be successful. Yeah, yeah, that that totally makes sense. Yeah, so you know, there was an element of scalability. I mean, scale would be, you know, a thousand people. I mean, we, we, you know, probably weren't at that sort of scale, but it's, I think we were able to deliver repetitively high quality work that I think when you step back had sort of similar DNA. Yeah. And a big part of that DNA is life cycle thinking, right? And sustainability. Mm. Can you talk a bit more about life cycle thinking and for the benefit of the listeners, what does it actually mean? Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose from my point of view, I started out probably in sustainable design as a definition, but there's a whole decade of information that will be posited under eco-design and you'll miss it if you think sustainable design. And from sustainable design, I really got exposed through ISO 14001 to environmental science, and that led me to life cycle analysis or assessment. And from there, there's a short skip to life cycle thinking. So uh, probably, I mean, the, the, the easiest way to think about it is if you're looking at the whole life cycle of a product and all the kind of inputs and state life cycle stages and outputs, and some of the outputs are positive, like you're giving a product that might change someone's life and you know you've got products out there like i know something like tasker prosthetics which might completely change a a person who requires a appendage to you know might completely change the way that they're able to interact with the world so that's a positive output but then there's also things like the waste emissions which you know you kind of need to think about one of the core concepts, which is really the thing that attracted me to it in the first instance, is in life cycle assessment, you have a concept called a functional unit, which is, allows you to compare two things directly. The classic examples are delivery, you know, is a milk bottle versus a glass milk bottle versus a plastic milk bottle. You can't compare those things directly because one has to be washed and refreighted, one has to be recycled. So, you know, just simply comparing litre for litre doesn't work. So you have to step back and describe the system that you're delivering in a different way. And that's typically described as what is the service you're delivering. So in that case, it's the delivery of a thousand litres of milk. Then you can analytically compare those on an equal footing because you've taken into account all the washing, all the transport and crate, and also the recycling to the whole matrix. But 
from our point of view, we progressed that to, I guess, what I would call a core function, which is saying that every product does have a core function and it is sort of using the same concept, but it's difficult to just to use an analytical concept like delivery of a thousand litres of milk creatively. That system as a core function is saying what people really want is convenient fresh milk. That's the core function. So if you're given convenient fresh milk as the as the means, as really the reason that that product exists in the world, that can enable you to think differently and look through a different lens. So the core function is quite important. And then there was other work that we did which flowed beyond that is once you go out one layer, so you've got a core function, then you look at the attributes of that core function and then you go out another layer to each attribute and go to the parameters, all of a sudden you start describing the technical features of a product. And in technical products, obviously, there's normally a trade-off between, you know, kind of soft things like I like the colour purple and hard things like something that needs to travel 10 kilometres per hour and you've got to trade those things off against each other. And there's a lot of tools out there like quality function deployment, but we sort of started to use this other way of doing things which felt more intuitive, less kind of oppositional and more you know, like in one flow rather than against itself. So, and I was always looking for a way to integrate sustainability and life cycle thinking in the way that you do products so that it's not something that a person can look at and try and remove. Yeah. I often often find that designers, we're, we're the master jugglers of requirements, right? Like you say, balancing those soft versus hard requirements. And then you bring that layer of sustainability into it and you, you apply an engineering principle like life cycle analysis to it. And it kind of it misses those other intangible sort of design requirements. Like you say, you need to deliver a thousand liters of milk or convenient access to milk. And what about that? Expanding that even further and saying, I want to experience my milk in style or <laughs> in, a, in a way that's going to a timeless style. How do you capture those kind of elements in, in the concept? And I think like when we were doing core function, I think you can capture things that people think. One of the interest, the most interesting exercises, which was when we did the lifecycle thinking series, which was in the late 2000s, and that was with probably the, the top sort of three odd people that I know in the in the area of life. Jake McLaren, who was sort of was one of the key people in Nokia's environmental management team, and then he worked for Formway in the same capacity. And then his wife, Sarah McLaren, who, you know, helped establish the life cycle management kind of centre in New Zealand. And then Barbara Nabel, who helped to establish the Life Cycle Association in New Zealand, is probably one of the preeminent practitioners. So those three people, we had the series. And then I gave people five different product systems. You know, one was a sort of, I don't know, a lawnmower, a, a light in your in your house a washing machine, things like that. And it's interesting that in three different locations, we probably had, I don't know, a minimum of probably 80 or 90 people in each location. And in each of those locations, each of those groups independently arrived at an almost identical core function for every single system described, which shows you that, you know, I think what that means is that there is sort of an underlying reason and core function for most products that you can kind of decode and then sort of expand on. And those soft things become implicitly part of how you think about that system. So instead of a system like QFD, which is hard versus soft with a score, which is oppositional and quite counterintuitive, the system is there is no opposition. There's just sort of, you know, these things tend to kind of, they, they grow out of it from, from the work that I did. And 
it's interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know that I ever completely finished the thought process with that work. There was still, I think, some way to go to have it as a very resolved way. It's probably something, I don't know, I might come back to at some point. I think it's forever evolving. The, the whole concept around sustainable design and sustainable business is it's evolving even now. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose my evolution into the business context is, I suppose, much the same way that my frustration with, I guess, commercial execution of the, you know, you can deliver a world-leading product, but unless it's commercially executed well, then, you know, your ultimate success is mitigated. So, I mean, I guess, like, I've just been on a trajectory to, to the role that I have now where, you know, you you obviously are responsible for the commercial delivery. And so, you know, sort of bringing the same sort of design mindset to the role um, means that you do think differently about a lot of stuff. And so the way that you tend to run the business and the things that you prioritise also have that part of it as well. I mean, again, naturally, I think designers sit somewhere in the middle of the continuum of hard versus soft you know you're not purely soft and you're not purely hard you sort of have to absorb and and synthesize both of that into something that you can use so it's it is kind of a a natural place so yeah and I think over time I mean I suppose what tended to happen with our work is that I probably tended to work for companies that had a sustainability orientation and tended to work on product systems that were perhaps intrinsically more sustainable to start with because I don't really, I mean, some of the, the sustainability industry, I think conceptually was challenged on the basis that, you know, it's the kind of doing less bad approach where it's like, well, if you've got something which is fundamentally rubbish, you know, there are certain things you just simply can't do, you know. and It's, then, not, it's just not simple, is it? No, I mean, and I, but I do think there are, there are choices that every designer can make around the type of work that they do. I, I still don't think education, I was really quite focused on trying to get, you know, pro, sort of information and resources into education across the board in New Zealand. But I mean, broadly speaking, I don't think there was enough coming in from the university side to, to make it viable from, you know, so if you were willing to put in your own voluntary time, you're return is seeing things happen and if I couldn't see things happen then I, I wasn't willing to kind of like keep tipping time in so I think there is still a very strong case for life cycle thinking to be embodied in design education at a basic level so everyone that trains to be a product designer in particular gets to sort of learn about this conceptually and given at least some basic kind of construct of tools and references that they can go back to at a later point. I absolutely agree. I think that there's a bit of catching up to do in design degrees and sustainable design should be brought into the same level as user-centered design and, and all the other things that we learn at industrial design school. It's uh, It's got to be part of it. Let, let's talk a bit about UBCO, UBCO Bikes. Um, so 2016, you, you took on the role of CEO. How, how did UBCO come to be? So Locus sponsored the, and I was involved with kind of like the Field Days Innovation Award. So we we're involved with essentially, you know, developing that out. A friend of mine, John Corder, was the CEO at the time, a really progressive guy, very good business person. And so, you know, we, we were able just to get a lot of cool stuff done in a very short space of time. So it was like a lot of fun. So I was the convener of the grassroots judging committee this would have been probably 2014 now 
you know, you're probably judging maybe 40-odd entries. The grassroots is really the garage inventors, so, you know, it, we split the awards so that, you know, you're not commit, you're not competing against the big boys in, in an entry-level category. So we, you know, probably have a team of maybe, I don't know, six or seven people, farmers, um, some industry guys, and some, you know, they had some IP and legal folks in there along with people like myself. And I saw this uh, bike um, from Daryl and Ant, and I don't know, I mean, there was just something about it, but I definitely saw a lot of potential, and I saw immediately a lot of potential well outside farming because I said, you know, shoot, there's... I think the analogy that I always roll back to is it was almost like Lego where you've got police Lego, you know, kind of space Lego. The bike was a bit like that. I could visualise it being in a whole lot of different contexts. And the work bike or the tool bike, I think, as Daryl and I kind of called it when we were whiteboarding, you know, in this uh, lab that we'd created in the middle of the innovation area. And I got along with those guys and then I, I gave them our award, which was essentially 120 hours of our time best put against something that they weren't that good at. So, you know, they were probably, Dale's a very good designer, Ant's kind of a, an inventor and sort of, you know, probably had developed the supply chain of, you know, so they were involved with e-bikes for a decent period of time. So it was very early days in the e-bike. So they were you know, kind of right at the front edge of that curve before it was mainstream. So, you know, we started working together and it was really the brand. I said, well, look, you don't need help with that stuff. Well, why don't we just focus our effort? And so that's where Ubco was created. Black and white was, you know, every company owns a colour. And so we decided to kind of focus our energy on black and white because I don't think anybody owned that. You know, if you think, you know, Yamaha's blue, uh, Honda's red, KTM is orange, Polaris is probably green, Kawasaki is green. You know, so there was a definite kind of like, and that choice of black and white, I think, has proven to be very beneficial for the product in terms of its the, and the brand's identification. It's also got a really u- unique utilitarian aesthetic as well, which is seems to be it's pretty cool. Like, it's polarizing the the appearance stuff. I mean, you get some people that. I guess you have to be a little bit careful because if you're going to be an acidic designer, you know, essentially my opinion is better than yours, so shut the fuck up. I would say that designers that I respect like the product and people whose opinions that I I may not respect perhaps don't like the product. So the, the utilitarian <laughs> nature of it appeals to some and doesn't appeal to others. But I think as begrudgingly people have sort of, you know, the product structures come about because of its functional kind of requirements and the layout of how the product is constructed. So it's it's a very sort of synthetic design, technical and design blended. It's not, you know, you can't, it's not a product you could have just designed. It was driven by the component layouts and parts. Yeah, I love that. That's good, good, honest and transparent design. And, and you look at it and you feel like you can trust it. It doesn't look too complicated. Yes. Yeah, you know, it's not, nothing's over designed or engineered. Everything has its purpose, right? Yeah, and it's definitely yeah. sublimated over time as technology has, you know, increased and improved. So, yeah. So what's what's next at Upco? Um, so probably, I mean, we, I guess if you look at where we started, I mean, you're probably t- principally talking about an assembly of known technology in 2014. 
And then sort of where we sit today, I mean, you've pretty much got a completely um, independent technology product from all the PCBAs to all that stuff is now completely end-to-end with us. There's very few aspects of the product now that we don't, we don't have not engineered, developed, tested, all controlled. So, and even where we work with an existing manufacturer, you know, some people you know, look at a brake system or something, so, oh, you use that company and going, yes, but it is a specific SKU to us and we actually source all the brake hoses, assemblies, and then they have a special SKU that's just for UBCO based on our specific requirements. So, I mean, even things like that. And I would suspect that over time we would pursue that to its logical end, which is really that, you know, and, I mean, you know, we've had this goal to develop the sort of ultimate, you know, kind of two-by-two, so it is a... You know, that sort of governed our product development for a long time. And now I suppose we've diversified a bit and, you know, we, our goal was sort of to develop a sort of complete program. I think with the current climate and the way things are, I think, you, you know, we've probably, you know, made a decision to be more focused in the near term. So, I mean, all of those projects remain critical to us, I believe, in the longer term. But we have a lot of opportunities in the near term, which, you know, we can just be more focused on two by two and portable power because that's where the big gains are. I mean, if you look at deliveries and now moving into that delivery space and, you know, all of the bikes that we have in inventory in New Zealand are committed going into Domino's for for food delivery. So we've probably been doing that over a 15 month period, um, but it's now sort of scaling up and then that's that's also being mirrored internationally where, you know, we're, we're sort of discussing with some pretty big delivery companies in the US and also in Europe around kind of adoption of some of the vehicles that we've developed. So I think there's a definite um, broadening of the range, but probably, you know, still remain pretty focused on the core product right now. But I think, you know, with 4x4 and FRX1, which is a higher power off-road um, bike with a, a more of a mid-drive construction. These are the ones that I think will come in over time and they kind of give you a more complete range. There's a lot of business stuff, so I think design, the way that, I mean, it's interesting the way design works in the company because of obviously me, I mean, design is inherent in virtually everything we do. Some people struggle with it because obviously it's like, you know, I won't accept badly formatted presentations or documents and you know all of a sudden people are forced to think about the way they're presenting things think about the way they're communicating things and I think we're sort of at the stage now where the the organization's grown up a bit and we now have to sort of almost be intentional about that and talking to our chairperson uh, Catherine Sanford you know both of us are sort of saying well look we probably have to you know now we have to actually look at training people in design and design thinking as a company to make sure that everybody consistently carries that in what they do. So, I mean, design's definitely, uh, like, it, it becomes a kind of, yeah, it is an integrated part of what we do. And the user experience, you know, like, we've, we've got a lot of work going on that at the moment, you know, just looking beyond the basic stuff. And it's like, you know, from the box. So we've got a fully assembled package now. So that we have legal permission to drop ship that to an end customer with all the road registral documentation. We've now got to put a learning management system in place. So, you know, with an end customer, that can be dropped at their doorstep. It gives them the four tools that they need to assemble the bike. 
there's stickers on the bike and a five-step process for them to go through, which essentially sets the bike up for them to ride. So there's lots of stuff that's going on. Like, you know, most designers would, they would see it as a common thing in what they do on a daily basis. And that's sort of being adopted by people, except, you know, we don't necessarily have a, you know, it's not like every person is a designer. We've got a lot of people who coming from a wide range of different fields but they're having to learn to think like one to to work effectively in the company so it's a real it's a real design-led company and it sounds to me like that that is um one of the keys to its its ongoing success having having everyone think about that user experience and and everything is well thought through all of the touch points and not not just the product not just the brand and and the website but the whole the whole experience how how can we do more of that in New Zealand? Well, I, I mean, I because I've sat on boards now for a while, and I, you know, it's, I don't necessarily say it's something that I particularly enjoy. I think most designers like to be sleeved up and in, right? And and that's the same probably with engineers too. But the thing is that you know, when you sit on boards, what you learn very quickly is that there's a group of lawyers and accountants who pretty much control all the major decisions for these companies. And, you know, where are the ideas people? There are none, right? I mean, that's a problem. Like, you get big companies that have zero ideas people on a board of directors, and I don't, I think that's really bad. But, you know, designers have to take responsibility for that because unless you are prepared to take on those commercial challenges and keep in mind that if you want to operate at that level, you have to concede that there are changes you have to make to the way that you work and the way that you communicate and interact with people that conform to that kind of framework, you know? like The designers, they, they can have the most impact at the board table and well they can certainly i mean you need those other people there right for all the other reasons like tax like yeah. business structure like you know all sorts of finance and capital like absolutely you've got to have these other disciplines but i think it's amazing how many you know boards don't really have you know someone that can because again like i think some of the great companies in the world were driven or run by idea-driven people. And so, you know, if they face a problem, they, you know, develop a solution. It is true that not every ideas person is a designer, and there's some people that... I've met a lot of people that I've said, you could have actually been a designer, you know, like, because you think like one. We've got a customer services guy at the moment that I'm sort of training to do a lot of the use case research in the business. And, you know, I said, shit, you know, with the way I've seen the way that you think in customer services, and it is like you are, you, you think like a designer in the way that you look for information, you know, that your kind of level of inquisitiveness and your natural kind of desire to kind of find information and find solutions and pathways for things so you know i've kind of almost like yeah well we have moved him into a different role and that sort of leverages his skills better but yeah i do think designers probably you know like much the same way as you want to integrate uh, let's call it sustainability into a university degree that deal or a polytech course that teaches product design i think there's a very strong view that maybe design you know, even the Designers Institute perhaps should think around, well, how does how do you train designers for a governance role? You know, and, and, and like there's obviously Institute of Directors courses and there's the Angel Association of New Zealand runs 
some very, very good early stage governance courses because, you know, early stage governance is very different from big established companies. I mean, obviously, you have to have someone who's willing to make the step. In my case, if, if you want to direct the film, you're not going to do that by being a designer in a company. You're not. You're going to have to run the company. So basically, if you say... Well, I think, you you know, like probably if you take my pathway, I mean, I was involved in a management level at a young age with a good company that was well run. I think that, that is incredibly useful because it teaches you the rules and norms of business operation at, a, at an effective level. So being willing to step up into those roles and finding, you know, kind of people that are prepared to back you. I mean, I, you know, there was one person in that company that backed me into that role and that's the owner. So Dave McFarlane. So I think it's, you've definitely got to find people, you know, that are prepared to endorse you. Um, but equally, I think training, I think financial literacy, management, program management, all these sorts of skill sets, they naturally kind of allow you to participate at that level. Yeah, you've got to be prepared, I think. I've always been very interested in other disciplines, and so I have been a sponge when it comes to anything, right? If it's environmental science, it's it's them. It's, if it's chemistry, it's a chemist. If it's engineering, it's an engineer. And so I, I've just absorbed, absorbed, and absorbed information continuously over my whole career. And so I think if you have a strong level of conviction in what you do, if you work really hard, People respect that, and I think you, you certainly have to establish respect before those other things are possible. And I think having strong knowledge across a range of different areas, again, you know, when you're, say, in a, in a board capacity, I mean, I think you have to, I think a lot of people wouldn't take a designer seriously, in all honesty. They won't. I mean, they, they expect to see certain types of people in these roles. And so, you know, you've got to, demonstrate that you understand and are prepared to contribute and bring bring strong input and, and, you know, kind of perspectives to the table. And interestingly, I think design is always progressive and tends to be more on leading edge of certain things, whether it be the adoption of media or, you know, just a variety of different things, tools. Often design is pushing the limit on some of that stuff. And so, yeah, and look, I, to be fair, design is, design can be a bit, sort of a, of a paradox because there's certain people that will resist change like it's like there's no tomorrow and that certainly if I have a criticism of the sector in New Zealand it's saying well look my practice is outstripped I don't probably I, I'm not hugely invested in you know a lot of design industry stuff because I only I can only really afford to spend time time on things that I can learn from and if I don't think I can learn from stuff then I'll tend to be not completely engaged I still remain a member I do like to participate in whatever way I can reasonably do but I think I'm definitely always looking for you know and so probably it's it's because of my current role it's probably natural and I mean I have to spend more time in a business environment absorbing stuff that you know can impact the business but I still think you know, if you look broadly and you looked at all the listed companies, all the unlisted and private companies in New Zealand, you know, if you had more design, more experienced designers participating at a more senior level, um, I would think that, you know, that will have a very positive impact on the company's, 
outlooks. And I think there's there's a lot of research, which I'm sure is communicated through the likes of Better by Design, where, you know, design-led companies generally perform better. But I think it masks the fact that you still have to have more designers willing to take the jump to be involved more kind of seriously at a senior level, you know, at a governance level, you know, of, of companies in New Zealand. Yeah. So we need we need to merge design and business a bit more, don't we? We need we need Absolutely. to get a bit more cross pollination and knowledge sharing going on there. Yeah, I think so. And look, I mean, you know, I think some of the design thinking stuff is useful, but you know, you gotta remember a lot of the people that are engaged with that stuff, they may not necessarily, you know, be running the company. And so I probably have like a very synthetic view of design in terms of how it can integrate into a company. And so it's got to be in the veins of a company, right? I mean, it's got to be in the culture and the way it's about the world. It's not just, yeah. I mean, I don't think you can just do a program. It's got to be deeper than that. What, what does success look like for you, Tim? I think probably, you know, success is probably for me has always been seeing you know, like if you if you are an ideas person, I mean, it's like seeing fulfillment of those ideas. And I've probably always been a, my ideas arguably are more, like they are almost like at a business level. I've always, that's the way that I've always looked at things. And so let's say if you took it, you know, Upco and whatever else I do, I mean, it's, I think success is seeing that translate into results, I think. And seeing things come together. I mean, there's already been things within co that you know you have as an initial idea I mean, even say like this we did this collaboration with three wise men which sort of started out as a simple idea and then when we went through to our conference in queenstown last year and we had all these people there and nobody had ever seen this collaboration at all and all of a sudden you kind of had you know richard who is the owner of three wise men turn up with this super cool video and then we opened the gate and you see this finished kind of fully urban bike fully customized limited edition bike and this full range of clothing which you know you know we had worked on with them i mean they did most of the design work but our team you know carolyn nordic developed the kind of the combination brand that's in all of the clothing you know things seeing things like that come together is is really good and then i i think also I think when you look at this sort of maturity of the products, it's very satisfying. I think now we're going into our fifth generation. If you look at this level of sophistication in the product, it's very gratifying to see that because that's a thousand shards of stuff over several years. You know, it's lots of small things that have all gradually. And, you know, you, you, you know, it's a whole bunch of different people's work. It's, you know, people inside the company, outside the company, manufacturers, feedback loops, people using the product. It's all that stuff gets sort of consolidated into. So that is certainly feels like success, but I probably won't be, I think, completely satisfied until we've really taken the company to, you know, a, a certain level. And, and, you know, that probably would be, you know, you know, being a sort of a global leader in the product category that we've got, you know, I think that's probably what ultimate success looks like. Absolutely. You've, you've got to set your sights high. I mean, I think all designers can relate to the joy in seeing their ideas come to fruition and, you know, seeing the amount of work that goes on over many years from many people to, to create a company like Upco, you should be incredibly proud i've really enjoyed our chat today tim hopefully there's some really good nuggets in there for listeners 
um, who want to take on the world. And um, is there anything else you'd like to add before we before we finish up, Tim? Oh, I mean, I think it's just that, you know, I think in New Zealand I've always really felt that, you know, design in New Zealand has a lot to be kind of proud about. I mean, I've done my whole career here for a reason and I think, you know, it's probably the old Len Lai, I think, said that, you know, I remember reading his book by Roger Horrocks and in that book it said, you know, he said that this teacher had said to him, you know, you've got to develop your own kind of philosophy for your work and that resonated with Len Light throughout his whole career and I think it's probably a good thing you know I think for me that's the same way right for a designer it's you've got to develop your way you know you know be strong about uh, your work and and really thoughtful and develop your own way of actually doing your work because I think ultimately that's what drives you know kind of the core of every designer's body of work. Awesome thanks Tim look forward to seeing where Ubco can go in the next few years. Thanks, Ollie. Talk soon. Talk soon.